Here we are, March the 19th, 2017, lecture discussion number 275 on the Book of Romans. And even though I left uh, a large debris field from last Sunday, uh, which we will undertake today mostly, and it may seem that we're far away from the sevens of Revelation and the sevens of Genesis, where I was about four or five weeks ago, I mentioned that last part to demonstrate that I have some remaining connection to reality. In other words, I actually have a pretty good idea where I'm at most of the time, though that's waning week to week. Revelation 17 is not done. I've left it undone in case you had given up on its resuscitation. Be assured um, that the sevens of Revelation, Revelation 12, 13, and 17, there were, there's going to be a reconveyance or a revival. This review of Adam and Eve's trial was only to establish the timing of the blood covering of the judgment seat. Christ comes out on the Hebrew betrothal ceremony pattern that he's established, and he holds up the blood covering. When does he have the blood covering? When does he give it as evidence? And to whom does he give it as evidence? So who receives it? And for what reason do they receive it? And what does it prove? And so go ahead and list the same uh, uh, what do I want to, usual suspects. Who gets that blood covering? That's where we were. That sent us back to Adam and Eve. Why does it send us back to Adam and Eve? Because that's where the first mention of blood covering is. is so I hope you recognize that. So the purpose of the blood covering, again, with respect to the judgment seat of Christ and the midpoint of the tribulation has this correspondence it's a seven. It has this correspondence with the seven or the trial of Adam and Eve. So the question became, as we went through all of that, whether Adam and Eve's trial was a seven-day trial or a seven-month trial. I don't think the seven-year position is really defensible, but seven days or seven months is easily defensible. And the seven of the judgment seat, again, they attach to each other, and that's how we got into this predicament, I guess, for lack of a better term. And we're nearing the time of reconciling those two. And once we do that, now we're on to Ezekiel 38, which I mentioned in the pregame. That's the confederacy from the north that invades the nation of Israel at the end of the time of the Gentiles, which started in 586 B.C. with the Nebuchadnezzar sacking Jerusalem. So the end of the age of the Gentiles has gone on for a long time, 2,600 years almost. It's about to end, and it ends with a confederacy of Russia, Syria, Libya, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and perhaps even southern Europe attacking Israel. And we'll have to reconcile the sevens of the judgment seat, the sevens of, or the seven of the trial of Adam and Eve, the with the sevens of Ezekiel 38, and you, you know, I'm sure you do. If you don't, don't worry, we'll catch you up. There's seven years of burning, and there's seven months of burying. That's why I say the seven-month position on Adam and Eve has some, um, some significant defendable positioning in it. Okay, and as you should come to expect, at any time I'm talking about sevens, I've got the many sevens of Daniel to throw back in there as well. So emotionally prepare for more math as we finish this part up and as the world around us staggers towards its war to destroy Jerusalem. 
Remember, all sevens return to the creation seven. That's the first rule of sevens. Okay. Before dealing with last Sunday, I have some internet business. You might remember my mentioning briefly a couple of weeks back, a question was left on TubeFace. We have, we have, um, Supper Dave puts, and, and those of you out there on the internet that think that I am really Supper Dave, I am not. Notice his wife laughed as soon as that was, I don't know if that was, how do I interpret that right now? I'll get back to you. But at Supper Dave has put the last 40 or so lectures on uh, TubeFace or YouTube or whatever it's called. And somebody wrote a comment. And I need to squeeze it in today. I, I referenced it, as I said, this posting, because it, it is about the issues of free will and existence, which fits perfectly in the subject that we're in, of course. And I think that particular uh, lecture actually was that subject. But so let me read what the gentleman said. I think it's a gentleman. It could not. It could be a, a, a lady. I, I'd be. Um, there's no reason to assume it's not. Here's what the person said. Visionary philosopher is how they identify themselves. At 1744, I assume that's at 1744 of the lecture. The importance of free will and existence is explained. And I have said many, many times, thousands of times, those are not separable. You cannot take apart free will and existence. It is a oneness there, a sameness. The importance of free will and existence is explained. If angels and humans have free will in heaven, how will a repeat performances of what happened previously be avoided? And that, of course, is an excellent question. I don't know the intent of the question. Let me say that I get lots of questions. Some of them have, how shall I put this, nefarious um, agendas. I don't know that this one does. I don't think it does. I hope it doesn't. But I have to be prepared for that. By what happened previously, I'm, I'm going to assume that visionary philosopher is citing the fall of Satan and the fall of, of the woman. And ultimately the fall of Adam. Both Satan and the woman chose an act of rejecting their creator, though the degree of the decision is not comparable. Understand that. I'll explain that next week. We'll discuss what I mean by that later. Essentially, the question is, how can sin be avoided if angels and men truly have free will existence? Why won't the sin issue repeat itself? How has God thought of a way to stop this? Free will existence, uh, as an aside, is a redundancy. It's too many words. Those words are all unnecessary. I intentionally state it as a redundancy, so don't write me. I have brought up in previous or prior lectures that a central premise of the lie of Satan is that free will is only de demonstrated by sin. So the only way the premise of Satan's premise is essentially this, that free will can only be uh, identified as free will if it is utilized to reject its creator, or to go into a condition of sin. 
And the opposite of that, the way you evaluate these things, of course, is to present the opposite. That's a mathematical principle I hope you will understand at some point because it helps you in your logical assessments. I'm going to take the inverse immediately and ask this or say this or state it this way. Absolute obedience, if free will is demonstrated or illustrated by rejection or demonstrated only by sin, then what is the opposite of that? Absolute obedience would be the opposite. And absolute obedience, then, is an exhibition of mechanical automation. Do you understand what I mean? If free will is sin, then not, free, or, or then not sinning would be not free will. Absolute obedience is an exhibition of robotic uh, characteristics, or non-life, if you will. If existence is life, and, and life demands that you sin, you see the premise? Then obedience would be mechanical, that would be non-life, or non-being, or non-existence, which would be a temporal state as opposed to an eternal state. Because existence is eternal. Non-existence is temporal. God defines living soul as true, free will, eternal existence. Again, intentional redundancy. Don't write me. All that now, all that substrate to say this. Satan said to the woman, God lies. God is therefore fearful of man. If God lies... Then what's the issue? Why does he lie? If God is concealing something, why is he concealing it? God is concealing or God is lying. God is therefore fearful of man and angels discovering their actual condition. That is implied in Genesis 3.5. If God lies and if God is concealing or if God fears that something will be discovered, then God is what? He's evil. And if God is evil, nothing is stable. Chaos reigns, awaiting only its inevitable revealing as such. Note the reoccurring emphasis on Genesis chapter 1 as you read it. I hope you have read the reoccurring emphasis. Let me start. I didn't erase the board in time. I'm going to leave my list over there. I'll get rid of all of this. And I get to start over in my little box that I mark every time I say, by the way. What occurs in Genesis 1 over and over and over again? Six times, actually, so not over and over and over again. What's the theme the theme is good. And eventually it becomes exceedingly good. God is constantly, not constantly, repeatedly saying that what he is doing in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is good, 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 exceedingly good. Who is calling it good? God is calling it good. This takes you to the person that calls Christ good. If you call Christ good, then that is an indicator that you understand that he is the creator of all things. He's God. And Christ asked him, why do you call me good? 
Do you have any understanding of what you're saying? The answer is no. The emphasis in Genesis chapter 1, good, exceedingly good. And goodness can only come, it must derive from goodness. There must be goodness in order for goodness to manifest. Just as life must come from life, biogenesis, the law of biogenesis. Life must come from life. Life cannot come from non-life. Every time I am on the Internet and somebody wants to talk to me about this, it is always, you are so stupid because you do not think evolutionary concepts or philosophy are true. So therefore, you are a bumbling idiot and, and should be held in vile contempt. That's what I get. And my response to that is always the same to them. Do you believe you will cease to, cease to exist when you die? And that always stops them because they don't believe that and they don't want it to be true. But evolutionary monism, as you know, it is fundamentally cessation of existence or a temporal state. That is what it is. So you may, you may think it has scientific credence. I think it is illogical. But we can both agree that philosophically it is hopelessness. So we can at least agree with that. And I always have to say to me, you're right. Ugly, heavyweight, big bone person. You're right. Monism is a fundamental of evolutionary philosophy. And that means that my life is worthless, useless, valueless, and purposeless. They have to agree with that philosophically. If they want to embrace evolution, that is all you get. Good luck. Teach your kids. See how they come out. Okay, I was ranting, wasn't I? That was not anywhere in the text. Now I have to find my place again. Let's ask a few more questions with the hypothesis. Free will is only revealed by sinful decisions. That is the hypothesis. True free will, which is a redundancy. Free will is only demonstrated, revealed by sin, the choosing of sin. That is what Satan is saying in Genesis Genesis 3. So let's evaluate that. That's our subject as a matter to be deliberated today as best we can. We'll start by bringing this point up. Adam was as the first created being. Let me repeat that. Adam was as the first created human being. He is in two conditions. He has an advantage over us. He has two conditions. He has a sinless condition and he has a sinful condition. What I mean by that is he starts in a sinless condition and he goes to a sinful condition. So he experiences two conditions. We experience how many conditions? One condition, that's all we've got. So he has an advantage. What can he do because he was in a sinless condition and also now in a sinful, if you wish to call it now, but he's in, a, he's in two. What can he do with that? Remember, approach Adam as if he is a super intelligence, 
that you have never experienced. No one has ever gotten to the level he's at. Frankly, no one got to the level post-flood of Solomon. But here is Adam. What can he do with these two conditions that he experienced? When he's in a sinless condition, he gets to, he has contact with a created human being who is also sinless. So he can compare sinlessness. He can compare his status with the other human being, Eve, or the woman, and her status. They can look at the similarities. Both of them can. And he also has contact when he is in a sinless condition with a sinful person. A person who was sinless that became sinful. Does anybody follow what I just tried to do there? Thank you for pretending, yes. I'm going to try again. Adam was sinless. The woman likewise. The woman falls. Adam remained for a time sinless. We'll go over that. We'll go through that verse where it says she gave to the man who was with her. The question becomes, where was the man? When did she do that? Do you assume that that there is no time between when she ate the apple and she gave the apple or the fruit or the poison or the whatever you wish it to be? To the man. So we'll get through that. It's really not that difficult. Every time you have the position that they were side by side uh, for the entire duration of the event of Eve and Satan, that position has been repeatedly destroyed intellectually. It's, it, well, I'll just tell you, it's impossible scripturally to defend it. Now, next week I'll make that case. I hope I remember. If I don't, somebody raise your hand. Never raise your hand here and tell me. Adam was sinless. The woman likewise sinless. The woman falls. Adam remains for a time in a sinless state. And Adam now in the sinless state, he's standing, he's confronting a human being who was sinless, who is now sinful. And so what can he do? He can compare her in every aspect, can't he? He can investigate her. Does she look the same? Is she missing something? I had a discussion just before we began uh, with someone who brought up the raiment position. I won't mention her name, but her initials are Catherine. Catherine said, what about the raiment position? Was there some kind of covering over Eve that as soon as she took the the poison, that covering disappeared? Does that have some connection to the uh, fig apron or the fig um, ephod, if you will, that she puts on vestment? But where was I? Adam is in a sinless condition. He's standing in front of, he's confronting a human being, the woman, who is no longer in a sinless condition or a sinless status. She's now sinful. And no other human being has done this but him. 
Nobody. And so that's very important, and I cannot avoid the importance of it or emphasize it enough. The woman in her first phase contacts a human being who is also in his first estate, and she does not face a living soul human who is in a fallen status while she was in an unfallen status. Did that make sense? Okay. Try again. Oh, I just cut myself on the paper. Ouch. What does that mean to me? It's not bleeding yet. Oh, yes, it is, because my skin, being in an aged, doting position, is very thin now and subject to bleeding. Oh, well. I guess that means I go last in the buffet. Yeah, yeah, that seems evident. Let me repeat this. I can do it because I wrote it. The woman in her first phase, in her sinless phase, contacts a human being who is also in his first phase or his first estate, which means he is sinless, but she does not face a living soul human being who is in a fallen status while she is in an unfallen status. So she does not have the experience that Adam has. Only Adam has that experience. Only Adam does this. All descendants, of course, I'm checking to see if massive amounts of blood are flowing out of me. So far, so good. I know I'm, I'm tempted to, to, but I won't. I have something that will heal everything. Are you bringing me a band-aid? Wow. Why are you wearing a parka in church? Do you, do you, will you admit for the internet that I am not supper day? Oh, look at that. <laughs> Thank you. I am not. You are right. But no one believes you now. <laughs> it is really funny how, how the, the, just, they're constantly calling me. We, we've never seen the two of you in separate, uh, we only assume that you're telling the truth. Okay. Adam is the only one that has the ability to look at another unfallen person in a fallen status. Eve went fallen and Adam was still unfallen. So she never in an unfallen position could see a fallen position except for an angelic being. But only Adam does it with humanity. All descendants, of course, only experience likewise fallen, created humanity. So Adam has a knowledge that has never been duplicated, and he could compare and contrast Eve with herself and repeat the evaluation with himself until he makes his decision to sin. My question has always been, how long did it take him to do this? And I submit that he did an extensive analysis. I also submit that he was prepared for it. But it's something that you cannot prepare for until you can confront it. My point is, I know this is where everybody says, yay, a point. That's sarcasm, but I'll deal with it later. Is my point is that Adam had a heretofore unrepeatable crucible which gave him an insight that he alone has carried. 
His understanding of good from evil had greater depth than all of us who have come after him. But we will all be in his position soon. We will be able to repeat this because we will see people in an unfallen state. And we will know somebody in a fallen state. Who will that be? That will be ourselves. Adam could put Satan's contention that free will is only demonstrated by sin, only expressed if it's in in rebellion to the standards of God. Adam had that in front of him. He put that immediately to the test. That played out for him. That exact hypothesis. He did, and he would have, as his, as his test subjects, two controls, if you will. Two persons with which to co- conduct a comprehensive experiment. Again, I submit it is consistent for him to do that, considering the extraordinary intelligence level that he had. He would do this exactly. And I know that's supposition, and I concede it, uh, that it's supposition, but I believe the evidence of Scripture supports that conjecture, which we touched on a little last week. Uh, Let's put this back on the board. I erased it. Surely not. Whoops, oh, there it is over there. Don't have to. Let me add to it. Dying, you shall... Die. That is the literal. And that's important because of the two aspects of that and because it's the first mention. Did Adam know the definition of dying you shall die? Because he's told that in Genesis 2.17, or surely die. From Genesis 2.17, he's told, if you take this poison, you will die. Did Adam understand what dying meant? If he didn't, and I think that he did, But if he didn't, he certainly would now as soon as he ran into Eve, wouldn't he? He would see the physical changes if they exist, and I think they did. He would see the mental changes. He would see every aspect of dying right in front of him. And he would be able to compare a dying state with an undying state, something, again, that no one else has done, no created human being. And I think that he was uh, prepared for it. And Genesis 3.17 adds more validation to my position here. God says to Adam during Adam's sentencing, because you listened to your wife. I could make commentary here that would get me, I'd never get anything from the buffet again. And today there's cookies. So I have to be careful. Because you listened to your wife. Back to this a second. Dying, you shall die. What's the difference between dying and die? Dying, will you agree, is a process. Die is what? God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife, which causes the most obvious question, what exactly did Eve say to Adam that he listened to? What part of it? Or did the woman, to put it this way, did the woman ask Adam to eat the poison and join her in her surely die condition? And he listened to that and did what she said. Yes or no? All of those who think yes can move over to this side. All of those who say no can stay 
over here. Do you think the woman in a dying state said to him, join me in a dying state? If you think she did, it will be necessary to ask, answer why she would do that. She's clearly more vulnerable, vulnerable if she's alone. Now, that's evident as the, as the passage goes forward with regard to the tree of life or respect to the tree of life. And God said to Adam, let me read that. Let's go ahead and read, read uh, that, 3.17, so you get the full force of it without having to remember it. And unto Adam he said, because you have listened unto the voice of, the, of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then the thorns and thistles. So there's two aspects to that, right? You listened to your wife and you ate from the tree. There's two. Because you ate from the tree and because you listened to your wife, death will come. So what did he listen to of what she said? Figure out what she said to him and what part of it did he listen to or did he do all of it? By listened, hearkened, um, convinced, obey. What did she say to him that he did? Because of that, and because he ate from the tree, the death will come. And everything will die because the man has entered into a surely die status or state or estate or condition. Romans 5.12. Everything dies. Does he know that everything's going to die? before he takes that poison. See, did everything die when Eve took the poison, or the woman took the poison? No. Everything dies when he does. That's what the Bible says. Yes, sir. That would be, <coughs> excuse me, he, the question for those on the Internet and those who are in the back already getting to the buffet table, eating the cookies. And it's happened. Listen, I've got a view. I can see the cookies. I'm counting how many have gone. It's not good behavior. You're up here in the front row not knowing people are sneaking back there and taking cookies. Because they can. And I don't identify them by name yet. <laughs> his, his question was, is, was she trying to convince the husband or her husband, Adam, to join her in a state that she's now in and saying to him that the state that I am now in is superior to the state that you're in. Is that, does that sum it up? The problem that you will have is that Adam calls her the mother of the living. The problem that you have is that she confesses that she was deceived. A person who does that clearly would not want somebody else to, to go into a death state with her. I've taken poison. Let's just do it. I've taken poison. What is my first thought? Hey, maybe I can convince Lori to take the poison with me. Probably not. I would hope. I don't think the evidence uh, demonstrates that she was immediately evil. And he certainly does not ascribe that to her by why, how he renames her. So why would she try to kill him or put her, him in her position? 
So if she didn't do that, which is an excellent position, by the way, to bring him forward. If she didn't try to lure him in to her misery, her sinful condition, what did she say that he listened to? So I want you to consider that. And all of this to say, this took time. How much time? And again, death would not have come to everything if the man had not become dying you shall die. The man, Romans 5.12, causes this death to go throughout the creation. So this took time, I believe. How much time? Seven years? I don't think so. Seven months? Seven days? Seven hours? We'll try to resolve that in the weeks that come. I believe it was a seven. And I believe passionately, uh, without fear of dispute, that it um, or successful dispute, that it corresponds to the crucifixion week of Christ. I think the last Adam, Christ, and the first Adam both had the seven-day periods, or seven periods. And we'll see where that correspondence ends up. All sevens return to the first seven, which, of course, is the creation seven. But I'm getting too far ahead, so let's back up. Adam had himself unfallen. And he had the woman in a fallen position in front of him. And I think it's only the case that he went through an assessment period. He considered the factors. He evaluated the options. At some point in this, at the end of it, at the end of the process of evaluating, he chose to listen to something his wife said while remaining undeceived. 1 Timothy 2.14 Remember, he is never fooled. 1 Timothy 2.14, as clear as ringing a bell, Adam was undeceived in this entire situation. You can't have him stupid. He's not. It won't work. The Bible smacks you for that. So what did he listen to? Why did he make the decision to sin? Why did he make the decision to take the poison? What did he listen to that his wife said? all the while remaining undeceived, which is, you know, critical piece of information. Whenever that is, it is said that Eve, um, whatever it was that Eve said, Adam not deceived. Can't repeat that enough. Adam made a free will choice decision. It's markedly different from Eve's, but it nonetheless is sinful. So, to end that portion for today, did Eve make a free will decision? Did she make a free will decision demonstrated by her sin? Do you say yes or no? In her fallen state, can she still make a free will decision? I, the tree of life is absolute evidence of that. Because God has to protect her and Adam from the tree of life so they don't make a free will decision in a fallen condition. God prevents it lest he put forth out his hand and take also from the tree of life in a fallen condition. Genesis 3.22. I've got to stop him, if you want. That's a humanistic way of saying what God intended. But God stopped him by putting up the flaming sword, the cherubim, and he made the tree of life uh, impenetrable from people in a fallen condition. How many, I've said this many times in the past, how many people were alive 
before the tree of life was destroyed, not destroyed, but eliminated, obscured by the flood. Billions. How many of those billions tried to get to the tree of life in a fallen state? Oh, a lot. They could see the tree of life. They knew what it meant. They, they, they could not get to it. Did Adam know it was possible to take a free will action in a surely die position? Our perspective, our condition, our status. Did Adam know it was possible? Did Adam act as if it were possible that a free will decision could be made while you're in an unfallen state? Yes, he did. He took action with that. Uh, the inference is, is that he believed that was the case. He had Eve's testimony at the least in front of him. Remember, their eyes were open to something. What exactly were their eyes open to? What specifically? They knew they were naked, Genesis 3.17. That nakedness keeps coming up. We haven't quite yet got to it, but we will today. Hang on. Try to stay awake. They knew that God had been true. Because they're now in a surely die situation. Now, Eve knew God was true before Adam did. Adam knew God was true before he went into that condition. They are just exactly as God said they would be. And because they're in that position, they sew fig leaves together and they put this vestment, this covering over themselves. And that causes God. It doesn't. That's humanity. A God is omniscient. But think of it that way if it helps you. That results in God. That's another humanistic approach because God is omniscient outside of time, creator of time. It's impossible to phrase it in a way that isn't disrespectful to him. Not impossible, but I haven't figured out how not to do it yet. So think of it that way and give me dispensation. The fact that they are in the surely die state, they now know that God, and again, Adam was not deceived, he always knew it. Eve now knows it for sure immediately as soon as she took the poison, she knew this one lied. This God told the truth. So they sewed fig leaves and covered themselves, and that now results, causes omniscient God to ask a question that he knew the answer to. He asks a bunch of questions that he knows the answers to because he's omniscient. But this is the one that we focused on last week. Who told you that you were naked? Let me rephrase it. Who told you that you were separated? So you're in a separated condition now. Separated from who? You're separated from God, for sure. Your nakedness now has a separation aspect. It also has a death aspect. The spirit separated from the body. I hope you remember that from last week. Who told you you were dead? Who told you you were separated from me? Who told you you were eternally dead? Did anybody tell them they were eternally dead? Do you think that Satan, once he got them in this position, that he just disappeared? My work is done. I'm going to hide now. There's no evidence of that at all. He would hang around, don't you think? Of course he would hang around. He's winning. Or so he would think. Plus, he has, the job isn't done yet. 
when did God put that flame around the tree of life? How much time passed between the eating of the poison and the poison and the making the tree of life impenetrable? How long did they stay in a fallen condition with access to the tree of life? And how long did Satan stay there? Because what does he want them to do? And you've heard me say that many, many times. I'm just repeating it for the Internet and anybody that hasn't heard it, which there are always a few. So be uh, considerate of them. Note how I expanded that definition of nakedness. Who told you you were eternally dead? And more on that in a minute. Okay, if free will is only demonstrated by sin, as the premise says, we then must consider the hot stove face plant scenario. Because that's where we end up, or the argument, or if you prefer, the inverse. After the millennial rule, or, or the seventh 1,000 year period is the seventh into the seventh day. After the seven 1,000 year period, the seventh day, what comes next? The eighth day. You pay for this insight right here. I mean, this costs some money. How does he do it? I know, that's what you think. The eighth day is the eternal order. So we have, we have this, these thousand year periods of which there are seven. Six of them are uh, distinct from the seventh. The seventh is the millennial order. And the eighth is the eternal order, the restoration of all things, also called the New Jerusalem. There's also the lake of fire, which is the place originally prepared for Satan and his angels, Matthew 25:41. But it will also contain those who reject the blood of Christ. The New Jerusalem will be the place of the redeemed. Will there come a time again when, when free will beings will choose to hate God? Or is it only preventative, the only preventative method to this, to stop this? How do I stop free will being demonstrated by sin? Is that the only way that free will can be illustrated or free will can be proven? So we're going to have the eighth day. Can a free will being in that eighth day choose to hate God? Is the only method to stop them, what is the only method to stop them from hating God? Or us, you, you're in the eighth day now. How does God stop you? Does God stop you? What is the method that he uses to stop you? Does he even have a method to stop you? What do you what stops you? The premise of this is there's one way to stop you. What is that way? And you'll hear it all the time. I will help you. The way to stop free will is to remove free will. Will God remove free will? See, that was actually a very funny question. No one laughed. We'll try it again, see if somebody will laugh. Will God remove will? (laughs) It wasn't that funny, but I worked on it a long time. The reward is not commensurate with the effort. 
is the only preventative method to, to, to preclude the choosing to hate God, the removal of free will. If he removes your free will, what have you lost? Yeah, everything, yeah. You've lost your existence. Can, can existence be removed? Now you're into information theory and the horizon of a black hole, all things you love. Can existence be removed? Taken? That's a key question. That is the essence of this subject in Genesis 3. Why would God give free will knowing beings? Why would an omniscient God give free will knowing, being omniscient, that it would be necessary to take it back in order to keep you from hating him? Because that's your position. When you have free will is only demonstrated by sin. At some point, you have to be in a sinless state again. And you have to stay in a sinless state. And if the only way to get you in a sinless state is to take away your free will, why would God have given it to you in the first place? And is it removable? He's omniscient. Why would he have ever given it to you where you could fall just to take it away from you later? And if he does, he's reduced you to a mechanical automation. And you're now in a temporary state. As Bill the Cow said, you lose your existence, you have lost everything. Would God have given you, me, us, existence, knowing that he would have to take it away on the eighth day? Is that your position? Let's go in another direction. That is the position of this, of this view, knowingly or unknowingly. That's why we had philosophical paradoxes a few weeks ago because I knew I was coming here, right? Let's go in another direction. I know this seems to be disjointed, but for the usual plan is to provide you the means to resolve the issue autonomously. My goal is for sovereignty for all of you so that you are not helpless when you're confronted by these kinds of philosophical Constructs. If we were to sin in the New Jerusalem, what would be the nature of that sin? And then what would be the manifestation of it? If you were to sin in the New Jerusalem, the eternal order, we've made it to the eighth day, we're in eternity, we're in the New Jerusalem, and one of us decides to sin. Don't point to the one you think is the most likely. Okay, go ahead. Why do the wives point to their husbands? What is the nature of that sin and then what would be the manifestation of it? Would it be greed and envy? If it is greed and envy, for example, that's one people choose a lot. If you, de- if you decide that somebody in the restoration of all things in the eternal order are going to be greedy, how will that envy, that greed manifest itself? I will tell you. It will manifest itself as murder. If someone steals, how will that stealing manifest itself? I'll tell you, it'll manifest itself as murder. If someone lies, how will that manifest itself? It will manifest itself as murder, exactly as it did in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Notice I'm inferring murder as the universal end of sin. Why do I do that? Again, see Genesis 3, Genesis 4. Okay, anyway, what is the motive for sin? 
Why do you want to sin? Why do you sin? What's your motive? Will Who in the New Jerusalem will have this motive? You're in the eternal order. You're in the state of restoration. Why would you agree that you would sin? Why would an eternally redeemed, saved, living soul being a redundancy? Why would an eternally redeemed, saved, living soul being, why would they lie? What would they lie about? Who in that, see this happens in the millennium. Christ is on the throne in the millennium. He is the omniscient creator God. Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, and people still sin with him on the throne. While Satan is in, uh, he's in the pit for a thousand years. Does anybody in the eternal order know, in the eighth day, know that Jesus Christ on the throne is omniscient God? Does anyone not know that? That's a better way to put it. Is there anyone who now is in the eternal order that, that does not know that Jesus Christ is omniscient? See, we have a tendency to think that God doesn't, doesn't know what we're doing. Will that, will that be present, that thought process, that tendency exist in the eighth day? Does choosing to be obedient, choosing to be wise, eliminate free will or express free will? That's what I said last week. How about us today? How many adults over 50 would choose to face plant on a red hot stove element? There it is. It's red hot. Notice I said over 50. Thanks for laughing. How many of us over 50, this is the hot stove face plant scenario. How many of you would choose to do that? Why wouldn't you do it? How many of you want to do it? I have no desire to face plant myself on a red hot metallic system. I don't, doesn't interest me at all. There is no temptation. I don't walk by the stove and say, wow, I wish I could put my face on that burner. Never happens to me. I know that's not true for a two-year-old. I know that's not true for a 14-year-old. It's not true for a lot of 16-year-olds, but we give them driver's licenses. And we tell them, here, here's a phone and a driver's license and 4,000 pounds. Notice the contingency, the over 50, which implies face planting on a red hot metal object is an object of consideration by teenage boys who possess very, very little risk assessment. I submit that the redeemed are not stupid, no longer stupid. The redeemed do not choose to be stupid. Why don't they choose to be stupid? See, that's what sin is, ultimately, right? It's deceived, your deception. You have been fooled. If you have been fooled, if you have been deceived, then you are what? Stupid. Repeat it after me. Ready? One, two, three. Okay. Why don't we choose to be stupid? Okay, back to surely die. Got to hurry now. Dying you shall die. Last week I did my best to accentuate the bonding of surely die to that which is preceded 
to that which preceded it and that which follows. By that I mean, dying you shall die sandwich. It's a dying you shall die sandwich. Uh, really more like a chain of events. So what came before dying you shall die? Eat freely. What came after dying you shall die? Adam naming everything. So, it's a surely die sandwich. Eat freely on one side, naming on the other. Got that? Chain of events. Or, if you will, free will agency is in front of death. And what's on the other side of it? Naming. What is naming? So, free will agency, death. So, I have a death sandwich. Free will agency, death. What's on the other side? What is naming? It's a exhibition of mental capacity. And as with Noah, God brings animals to Adam. How many animals did he bring? What does it say? He brought all of them. He didn't do that to Noah. He did that to Adam. How many are there? What do they all look like? Do they all look the same as they do now? And pretty much all impalas look like impalas. All black Labradors look like black black Labradors. What was the original condition of these animals? How many? He brings them to Adam. And Adam, with Adam, it is an exercise of Adam's capabilities, his memory, his analytical process. But mostly, Adam is doing what when he's naming these animals? What's he doing? Now, remember, I have free will, I have death, and I have naming. What is naming? It's, yes, it's an exhibition of free will on an astonishing level. He's choosing names and he's assigning them as he what? As he pleases. Naming at its essence is choosing. That is why it's on both sides of death. Free will, death, free will. How many choices did Adam make? Does God interfere Does God veto any of Adam's preferences? Does the text say, Adam, you made a mistake here. I don't like that name. We're going to replace it with this name. Does he do that at all? He does not. Again, note the sandwich. Freely eat, surely die. Millions and millions and millions of decisions. Free will agency. Dying you shall die. Free will agency revealed, if you prefer it that way. Which causes the angelic realm question, doesn't it? Adam is on display. The angelic realm is watching this. God is proving something. Remember, to consider the angels when reading or studying Genesis 1 through 4, those passages, and Matthew 4, and the crucifixion accounts, and the entire books of Daniel and Revelation, and Genesis 6, and Genesis 19, and 2 Kings 6, 17. You get the point. I hope. There are two realities. They're all over the Bible. The angelic reality and the human reality. Do not disregard the impact that each has on the other. Genesis 3 is personified by the collision of these two realities. The human reality is attacked by the angelic reality. With that, take another look at nakedness. And the eyes of both of them are opened, and the coverings, and the solemn question from God, who told you you were dead? Satan said to the woman, you will not die. Did the woman believe him? Obviously she did. If she does believe Satan, then who does she not believe now? She doesn't believe God. You can't believe Satan and God. They're contradictory. 
Satan's statement is a flat contradiction of the warning of God in 2.17 of Genesis. Satan presents to the woman the impossibility of her dying. You will not die. It's impossible. That's what he's saying. And she eats. Unbelief results in unbelief in God. She doesn't believe God. Unbelief in God. Unbelief in Christ. Unbelief in the blood of Christ. Unbelief in the salvation that Christ presents results in what? Death. People say to me all the time, well, I just don't believe. Why is God going to kill me for not believing? He doesn't kill you. You kill yourself. Unbelief results in death. That's a principle that's repeated throughout the Word of God. Immediately the woman knows the difference. Once she eats, she immediately knows the difference between what she had, which was life, and what she has now, which is death. She knows the difference. Her eyes are open to the realities of her death, the truth of death, or the why of death. Eventually, Adam chooses to join her in death. And the fall of Adam as the federal head, the namer of all of these animals, affects the entire creation. Every animal he named is now what? Dying. Did Adam anticipate that consequence? Did he anticipate not just his own death, but the death of every animal, the death of any and all children that were to come? Did he have that figured out? I'm going to tell you he did. He was not deceived. Adam's death was a different death. Did he know that it was so? Surely die would mean the dissolving of the bodies of all men and all animals with Adam's death. Did he know that? The decaying of everything. This perpetual march to dust. Order becoming disorder. The complex flowing to the simple. The made becoming unmade. Everything will have a relentless movement towards dust or deterioration. What does that sound like to you? That's right. It's the second law of thermodynamics which we experience in our world today every instant. It sounds like the second law of thermodynamics because it is the second law of thermodynamics. What stops the dissolution, the march towards dust? What stops it in thermodynamics? An outside energy source. A light source. The only thing that stops death is the light of life, John 8:12, the light of the world. That's why Christ calls himself that energy source. Who told you you were dead, separated, naked? Did Satan tell the woman that she was now in a lost forever state, a permanent state of death, that God would not save her? Did Satan say to her that God will not save you? Did he say it to Adam, God will not save you? How long did Satan have access to Adam and Eve when they're in a fallen state? Do you suppose Satan would try this? That he would uh, tell them the, what's ultimately called the tree of life gambit. Did Satan tell them they were already fully dead, completely dead? Is that why Adam said, I was afraid because I was dead and I hid myself? Who told you you were dead? That question is left unanswered in Scripture. God, omniscient God knows who told Adam that, right? Adam was not deceived. Adam names his wife the mother of all living. All of those last things I said fit together. Next week, we will fit them together. Maybe. Some of you 
Don't believe me. Yes, some of you will express it audibly. <laughs> I actually answered a lot of questions today, admittedly surreptitiously, but I did. And you will appreciate that someday. Maybe not today. 